At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to join us in our message series and dive deeper into what God's Word has for us today. So, Happy New Year. I don't know if you guys are New Year's fans. I am a big New Year's fan. I was just talking about someone with this the other day, that I love New Year's. And part of the reason I love New Year's is I love new things. That's just like my nature. I love new ideas. I love new initiatives. I love what's new, what's fresh, what's coming, right? I think I drive my staff around here nuts because I always have some new idea. And then like while they're working on that idea, I'm already on to the next new idea. They're like, wait, I thought we were just doing this. I was like, no, this thing, this thing. Like I just love new. And I love the opportunity that comes every year for the kind of fresh start feeling of New Year's, right? I mean, I'm one of those guys I trick myself into. It's not another day. Like, maybe it's because I'm bad at resolution, so I feel this like, oh, yes, I can do new ones. I can ignore all those ones I missed last year, and I can, like, focus on new rhythms and new things and and new this, right? But I, I just love the aspect of New Year's. And one of the things that naturally I feel as we kind of move towards New Year's is what is the new thing that God wants me to lean forward towards, right? I naturally feel that a little bit from my own life, but as a pastor, I also feel that for our community. What does God want to do? What's something we can lean into or look forward? What's a fresh vision or fresh thing that God wants us to look forward to in 2022? Recently, I was reminded that sometimes the new things that God wants to do are actually old things that we needed reminded of. Our staff and I have been reading through a book called Old Paths, New Power, and it's been looking at the reality that God's power also often comes through the paths that we most ignore, and it focuses around two paths, the power of prayer and the preaching of the word, and so we've been reading it together, and uh, in there, there was a reference to a sermon by a pastor out of New York, and so the other day, I was uh, out getting ready for Christmas. I was hanging lights, and I decided to throw this sermon on and give it a listen and just kind of focus on it. And as I was listening to this sermon, it's called uh, the house, uh, or My House is a House of Prayer by Jim Cimbala, and it looks at the text where Jesus overthrows the money changers and essentially says, my father's house is a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. And as I was listening to this sermon, I just came under a very deep sense of conviction about the power and importance of prayer. And I felt like God stirred something in my heart that just began to kind of trickle bit by bit. And as I thought about not only my own life, but as I thought about the church, I felt like God just kept whispering into my soul, don't look for something new. There's something old that you guys are called to pursue. How many of you have heard the phrase, uh, those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. Anybody heard that phrase before? Yeah, many of us. You know, it's, it's a great phrase. It's a reminder often that history is a place to learn from, to look back and see mistakes in the past, to avoid where we go. But I often wonder if that phrase is a little bit on the negative side, as if the only thing to really learn from history are mistakes that were made and that will somehow invent new ways to avoid those mistakes. I wonder if also we should look back a little bit at history and think a little bit of like, what is it that we can learn from the past? What are things that are tried and true that we need to go back to and relearn afresh for our day and our age? You know, I think that's part of the duty of our call as Christians is to go back 
to what are the things God has given? What has he shown us? What are the ways in which God moves? And how do we bring those to bear afresh in our lives and our community? And when we look at the history of God's people, both in his word and in church history, there are many lessons that we can learn. But today, I want to focus on one lesson that I think that I want to invite us into learning together over the year ahead. And it's the importance and power of prayer. When you look over the history of God's people, what we see time and again is that prayer is one of the key catalysts for the way God works both in us and the way he works through us in the world. If you go back and read the book of Acts, which is the story of the earliest and first churches, what you see is those churches were marked definitively by a culture of prayer. If you read through the book of Acts, prayer is mentioned over 30 times in the book. It actually occurs in over half the chapters, and in almost every major movement that God does in the church in that book, it's associated and connected with prayer. If you go back and you study church history and you see some of the great movements that God has done among churches and peoples across church history, to a T, you will find that the catalyst for those movements often started with a small group of people who were dedicated to prayer and to seeking after the Lord. Ahith Fernando, in his commentary on Acts, makes this comment about the history of the church. He says, when God wants to do something special in the world, he first gets his people to start praying. Prayer is one of the ways in which God has countlessly shown himself to work across history and through his word. And I think it's so easy in our day, when it comes to our lives, when it comes to our communities, to look for the next new thing. What's the next curriculum, the next study, the next kind of strategy that we can do as a church to kind of reach out and move? It's so easy for us, and it's so easy for me to get hooked on the new. What's the new thing? And oftentimes, we're more obsessed with the new than we are revisiting and truly learning the old paths, the paths that God works through tried and, tri and true time and time again. And one of those paths is prayer. And I believe that if we're really to continue to see God move in our lives, in our church, in the year ahead, then we must become a people of prayer. E.M. Bounds, one of the great teachers on prayer, says this. He says, what the church needs today is not more machinery or better machinery, not new organization or novel methods, but people whom the Holy Spirit can use, a people of prayer, a people mighty in prayer. And so this morning, as I thought about our community, as I thought about what does it look like for us as we step into 2022 what do I want to invite us into together as a church? What I want us to invite us into is to us continuing to become a house and a people of prayer, that that would mark our lives and our community. And so in order to do that, I want to take some time to kind of call us back to Jesus's vision for prayer and to look at one of his most famous teachings on the reality of prayer for his disciples. It's found in Luke chapter 11. And I want to take a minute and just read through the passage together, and then we'll unpack some things from it. This is Luke 11, starting in verse 1. 
Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, Though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What a father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is one of those passages that takes about two minutes to read, but an entire lifetime to learn. The passage revolves around a simple question asked by one of Jesus' disciples. He observes Jesus praying, and he comes to him when he's done, and he says, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. In many ways, this passage centers around kind of the cry of discipleship. These are men that had been walking with Jesus, had been learning his way of life. They were apprenticed to him as their rabbi, and they come to him to ask Jesus a simple question. Lord, would you teach us to pray? They observed other communities around at the time praying. They noted John, the baptizer, and his community, and his disciples, and their prayer life, and they're curious to Jesus. Well, what does prayer look like for us? The key question that kind of this passage hints on is simply the question, how does a life and community centered on Jesus pray? What does prayer actually look like for disciples of Jesus? And Jesus doesn't ignore their question. He engages it. He answers it. And through it, he teaches us a key principle that I think is true for all of us who seek to follow Jesus as our Savior and Lord. And it's simply this, that disciples of Jesus learn to pray. What Jesus gives them, in many ways, is not an easy answer. It's simple to understand, and we'll unpack it together, but what he really invites them into is a process of learning, of learning to pray that will take them their whole lives to master, but one that will enrich them and their community eternally. And what we see is that these disciples learn from their master how to pray. We've already documented how we see in the book of Acts the continuance of their prayer life, and the power in which God worked through those moments. But what I want to ask afresh for us as disciples of Jesus today is what does it look like for us to learn from our master what it means to pray? How do we learn to pray from Jesus? And there's three things that I think Jesus wants to teach us about prayer. Three things for us to learn from Jesus on how we can become a people of prayer. The first thing is this, that you and I need to learn Jesus's priority of prayer. 
The question that the disciples ask come out of an observation of Jesus's life. You see it right away at the beginning in verse 1. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, so after observing Jesus' prayer and his prayer life and what he was doing, the disciples are so intrigued by Jesus and the way he prays that they come and say, Lord, will you teach us to pray in the way that we've just observed seeing you pray? You see, what these disciples had noticed in following Jesus for a while was that prayer was actually a priority of the way Jesus lived life, that his life was marked by a tangible, intentional practice of prioritizing prayer. Even in some of Jesus's biggest ministry moments, prayer was still a priority for him. You actually see this a few chapters earlier in Luke chapter 5. Jesus is in the midst of engaging in ministry and what he's called to do. He's healing and ministering to people in countless ways. And through the miracles that God is doing through Jesus, it stirs up quite a crowd. Actually, Luke notes it in Luke 5.15. He says, but now even more, the report about him, Jesus, went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. Jesus is becoming famous at this point. Like, people are hearing about him. Like, have you heard about this rabbi? And then, like, when he prays for people, they're actually healed. When he speaks, he speaks with such authority. It's incredible, right? And Jesus' kind of fame is starting to spread. And as Jesus' fame is starting to spread, what did you expect Jesus to do? Well, I think if Jesus was in our day, we'd expect him to capitalize on that fame, right? Like, what can I do to get my message further out? How can I get more social media followers? How can I bring more people into my circle? Maybe I'll go preach at the nearby auditorium or the place. Maybe we'll find some bigger space that I can preach to more crowds. But what does Jesus do in response to the crowds that gather around him? Look at verse 16. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Prayer was such a priority in Jesus's ministry that even when the crowds were the most extreme, he would leave them to seek his heavenly father in prayer. Jesus prioritized prayer. And this isn't just an isolated moment. If you actually take time and read through the first 10 chapters of Luke, what you see time and time again is that Jesus' life is marked by prayer. In John 3, when Jesus is baptized and after he's being baptized, Jesus prays and the Holy Spirit descends upon him. We see here in Luke 5, Jesus withdraws from the crowds into desolate places and pray. In Luke 6, we see Jesus praying throughout the night literally giving up sleep to seek his heavenly father in prayer. In Luke chapter 9, the disciples find Jesus again alone and in prayer, even so much so that he climbs a mountain to pray. And then here in Luke 11, Jesus is found praying in a certain place. If there is anything to be observed from the life of Jesus, it is that prayer was a priority for his life. He prayed constantly in big ways and in small ways. He set aside time to remove himself from the busyness of life in order to seek God in prayer. And then disciples note this. They note how important it is to him. So important that it leads them to ask the sort of question. And likewise, if we want to learn to pray, then we must follow Jesus' example of making prayer a priority for our lives. What Jesus did in prioritizing prayer is that he actually practiced praying. 
To make prayer a priority is actually to make time to pray, not just to claim to value prayer. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus actually set aside time out of his schedule to pray. Sam Storms, the theologian, one of my favorite modern theologians today, says this in his book, Practicing the Power. Many Christians will say they are committed to prayer, but how many actually pray? Believing in the value of prayer and writing it into a mission statement of your church is one thing. Actually praying is something else. If you want your life to experience divine power, it needs to be a praying life. If you want your church to operate in the full gifts of God's spirit, it needs to be a praying church. If we're not careful, we can be the sort of people, myself included, who say we value prayer, but we actually don't practice it. But to prioritize prayer is to practice it, to do it, to set aside time to learn and grow in praying. Several years ago, I remember I decided that I really wanted to grow my prayer life and becoming more of a man of prayer. And I had expressed this to, uh, to my wife, and um, we talked about it a little bit. And a couple days later, she came down. I was downstairs in my office. She came down into my office in our house, and on my desk was a stack of books that I had gotten on prayer. And um, she looked at me, and she said, what's this about? And I said, well, I want to learn how to pray. And she looked at me, and she goes, well, then why don't you just pray? I was like, oh, yeah, that's a good idea, right? Like, that's how I think. That's how I'm prone to. Oh, I want to learn to pray? Well, then I'll read a book about prayer. That means I prioritize prayer, right? I'll listen to someone give a sermon about prayer. That means I'll prioritize prayer. But that's not what Jesus means when it comes to prioritizing prayer. For Jesus to prioritize prayer meant he actually prayed. And if we're to learn to prioritize prayer, we actually have to be people who pray, what Jesus' disciples learn in this moment is how to pray. And what you see in the book of Acts is they gather regularly to pray. They were a praying people. So what does it look like to practice a priority of prayer? Well, we see it right away in verse 1. Jesus prioritized time for prayer. He set aside time in his day to pursue and practice prayer. Oftentimes, over the years as a pastor, I've had lots of conversations with people about prayer, and I'll ask people, like, well, when do you pray? And they'll give me this answer, usually like, well, I, I usually, I just talk to God constantly throughout the day. And usually without, to a T, I can look at that person and say, I don't think you have a very dynamic prayer life. Not because it's not important to pray regularly throughout the day, but oftentimes that just means we are dictating when we feel like communicating to God. And often that doesn't mean we grow in a dynamic prayer life. It means we just talk to God when we feel like it or when we respond to it. When Jesus prioritized prayer, he set aside specific times in his day that were dedicated to engaging God. Often what we see in the text early in the morning, but he also prayed throughout the night and other times. To prioritize prayer is to set aside a time for prayer. Not only that, it's also to prioritize a place to set aside a time and place. That's where we see Jesus was praying in a certain place. Jesus would withdraw to a mountain. He would retreat. He would go into the wilderness. He would find a place where he could be alone with God and engage God deeply in prayer. To seek and learn to pray is to prioritize both time and place in our lives to cultivate and learn how to pray. 
Do you have that space in your life? Do you have that place that you go to to engage God together with him? Is prayer a priority? If we are to learn to become a people of prayer, we must learn Jesus' priority of prayer. The second thing that we need to learn that we see come right away is we also need to learn Jesus' model of prayer. Look at verse 2. And he said to them, so he responds now by giving them a prayer. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. If you've been around the church at all, you're probably listening to that going like, I think Luke missed a few parts. Like, that sounds a little off, right? Well, Jesus' fuller model of prayer is actually given in Matthew chapter 6. But both prayers are given as models to his disciples. So it's not really the Lord's prayer. It's as much the disciples' prayer or Jesus' way of teaching them to pray. And both models, though, contain the same element. And they're given by Jesus in twofold to help us learn to pray. On one hand, Jesus' model prayer is given to actually be said. When you pray, say. Say these things. This is a prayer that you are to learn to actually say yourself, both individually and as a community. This is why we say the Lord's Prayer together from time to time. But the model is not just only meant to be said, it's also meant to be meditated on. It's meant to be a way in which we say it. It teaches us and opens us up to the deeper reality of prayer. Like any good model, it's simple in its beginning, but it opens up a greater reality. And when we step back and really reflect on the model of Jesus' prayer, we realize that prayer itself focuses around two key things for Jesus. This is how I illustrate it to guys that I teach in discipleship to kind of help learn the reality of what the model is that Jesus gives us for prayer. This is my simple illustration. And I, th- I say this, think of yourself as a plug. You're like a plug, you plug into a wall, into an outlet. Think of yourself as a plug. And prayer in many ways is just like a plug built around two key prongs, two key things that prayer hinges around. And if you look at both of Jesus' model prayers, they both fall into these two kind of elements. The first prong of prayer is connection. It's us connecting with God. This is where prayer ultimately starts. We see it in Jesus' teaching. If we take Jesus' larger teaching in Matthew 6, Right? He begins, our Father who is in heaven. Prayer starts with a relational connection with God, recognizing that he is our Father in and through Jesus Christ, that when we come to trust in Jesus, God becomes our Father. We now have a relationship with him of intimacy who is in heaven, recognizing where God's reality is, acknowledging his holiness, hallowed be your name. And then we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The prayer of connection is both recognizing God relationally, recognizing his space, recognizing who he is as the holy God, and then inviting God's reality to inform our reality. That's where prayer begins. Too often when it comes to prayer, we rush into requests. We rush into the space of, God, would you do this? God, I'm having a hard day. Would you show up? God would do this. But what Jesus teaches us is when we set aside time for prayer, the place prayer actually begins is by coming in connection. God, this is who you are. God, this is your reality. This is what's true of you. And what's true of you and your reality, would you make that true of my reality and where I am? 
The starting place of prayer is to connect with who God is. Then from that place, Jesus models us, we move into the second prong of prayer, which is intercession, interceding, the idea of going or being between two entities. We see in Jesus' prayer that he then, when he shifts to asking, his asking is not just for me, but it's for us. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The great power of prayer is that as we connect with God and his reality, we then seek to bring that reality to bear not only on our lives, but on our community and on the lives of others. That this really is the hinge point of God, how Jesus teaches and models prayer. Start when you come to pray with connecting with God. Spend time abiding in him. And then as God informs your reality, move to the place of interceding for others. That's why I use the illustration of a plug. When you come to pray, your goal is to connect with God's power and then allow God's power to minister through you to connect to others. That's the power of prayer. That's the model that Jesus gives us. And these statements that Jesus gives us are to be meditated upon and thought about. They're a lifetime of learning. I come back to the Lord's Prayer time and time again as a model to look at and say, God, how can I connect with you more deeply? And how can I learn to help connect your reality to my community and the place around me? Learning to connect with God and learning how you can connect God to others is the great school of prayer. And it's what Jesus models for us. So we not only learn to prioritize prayer, we also learn to follow Jesus' model when we come to pray. But the last thing that Jesus wants to teach his disciples is to also learn Jesus' motivation for prayer. Oftentimes we miss this because we know the Lord's prayer, but Jesus doesn't just want to leave his disciples with a good model. He knows that that isn't enough. Just because we have a good example doesn't mean we'll actually prioritize that example or practice it in our own lives. And so in the rest of the passage, Jesus begins to give his disciples the heart behind prayer to unveil what is it that motivates or should motivate our prayer life of why we want to become a people of prayer, to prioritize prayer, to practice prayer. What motivates prayer for you? What motivates you to pray? What I found generally in my time as a pastor is there's two things that generally motivate people to pray. One is duty. We feel the sense of obligation that we are supposed to pray. That's what Christians do, right? Like we just, that's what we do. We pray. Aren't we supposed to pray? And all of us probably feel, if we're around the church any sort of time, like a sense of duty. Like I've, I've got to learn to pray. I should pray. I should pray more. Does anyone ever feel like, oh, I pray enough? I don't need to grow at all. No, but we feel this kind of obligation, right? And oftentimes, that's what drives our prayer life. Now, duty is not a terrible motivator. It's not the worst of motivations. But it's not often sustainable. Discipline is good. Discipline for a season is good. But if there's not a deeper reality beneath discipline, at some point, discipline becomes unsustainable. Right? If you worked out every day of your life and you never saw any results, you'd probably give up on working out. You might know, oh, I should work out. Yes, I'm going to be disciplined. But if at some point you just kept working out and just kept getting bigger, at some point you're like, ah, I'm done with this. 
And oftentimes what I sense is people's prayer life suffer because our driving motivation is duty. We don't see the results of prayer. We don't understand its deeper reality. We do it out of obligation, but at some point we just burn out on the duty and we're like, eh, I kind of pray when I can't. It's like working out, like, I try to get it in once a week if I can, right? And that's how we often approach prayer. The second motivation that I often see when it comes to prayer in people's lives is desperation. That we encounter moments in our life that are beyond our ability to engage. That we cannot fathom or understand how to navigate them, how to move through them. Maybe they're challenges, maybe they're suffering, whatever it is. And often out of desperation, it leads us to cry out to God. God, I need you to intervene in my life. I need you to do something beyond me because I'm not capable of handling this. God, would you show up in this area? Would you do this? And oftentimes, prayer becomes a priority when we feel most desperate. Now, again, it's not a terrible motivation, but it's not the best motivation. Because what do you do in moments when you don't feel desperate? You don't pray. Prayer usually gets pushed to the back burner until the next crisis comes along. So if we're to become a people of prayer, we can't be motivated simply by duty and we can't be motivated simply by desperation. I think there's a greater reality that Jesus wants to connect us to in this passage and it's the motivation of delight. That what Jesus wants to show is that we delight in prayer because God delights in answering our prayers. I'll say that again. We delight in prayer because God delights in answering our prayer. And Jesus is going to give two key stories to illustrate that point. You see the first one in verse 5. He said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Don't bother me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Now, oftentimes, the way that I think this parable has been taught or people have understood it is that it pictures God like he's a grumpy neighbor, that if you just beg him enough, if you have enough impudence, whatever that word means, then maybe God will respond. And really, if we're to see dynamic avenues in our prayer life, what we need to do is just come to God time and time again. And if we're faithful and constant, then maybe God will rouse himself enough to answer our prayer request. But the problem is, when we interpret the parable that way, we're not interpreting it the way Jesus means for us to interpret it. This is not a parable of comparison. It's a parable of contrast to highlight how God is not like the grumpy neighbor. See, in order to understand this, you have to understand Middle Eastern culture. In Middle Eastern culture, hospitality is of the highest degree. To be unhospitable is to bring shame upon yourself and to bring shame upon your community. So when this guy shows up at his friend's house to stay the night and the friend realizes, I don't have any food, and he goes to his neighbor and says, listen, I've got a friend coming. I can't fall into a place of shame. I need your help. In that culture, a neighbor would never dream of saying, no way, I'm already in bed with my kids, forget about it. No, because that would be a way to act unhonorably towards both your community and yourself. 
What you would do, and I lived in the Middle East, what any Middle Eastern will do is they would get up, whatever they had, they would give so that person could be a good host, to show honor to that person and bring honor upon the whole community. So the neighbor is actually acting shamefully in this context. Right? It'd be like this if Jesus said, how many of you, after breaking your friend, or breaking your leg, would call a friend and your friend would say, sorry, you're on your home, hope you can walk home. No one has a friend like that. If you do, you need new friends. Right? We don't have friends like that. Like, that's Jesus' point. You don't have a neighbor like that. But why would this neighbor who acts dishonorably respond? Because of your impudence. Because you're begging him. Well, even eventually he would. What he's trying to contrast is God does not act dishonorably. God is a God of honor. God is not withholding himself going, I hope you show up. No, because God is honorable, God delights in responding. God is a God who is quick to answer. He delights in responding to his people. He's not someone that needs roused from his sleep. He is a God that's present and responds, and he delights in responding to what we bring to him. That's why Jesus continues in his application, and I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks, receive. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be open. Jesus reminds us that God isn't like a grumpy neighbor. That he's actually active and ready to respond to his people. And therefore, we can ask God. We can bring our request to him. That we don't have to bring them out of duty. We don't have to bring them out of obligation. We don't just have to wait until we're most desperate. But we can actually bring our requests, our cares, our praise, all of it, we can bring to God. And God actually delights in providing. He delights in providing. Ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. The invitation in prayer is to engage deeply with God and his reality. The promise that God will respond to our asks drives us into the deeper reality of seeking. And as we seek, we see God open doors in our lives and in our world that would not be otherwise open because God delights in responding and providing to us. It is not a spiritual act of faith to resolve oneself that God will not provide. Too many people pray with the idea, well, God, if you want to, uh, if it's your will, maybe you'll heal. That's not faith. Faith says, no, I trust that my God desires to provide. I trust that he delights in responding to me. And if he's not, then there must be a deeper reality for which I must seek. My kids come to me and ask things of me and I tell them no, it is often to lead them into greater realities, right? If my kid comes to me and says, hey, dad, can I have candy for dinner? Right? I don't say like, no. No, I often lead them into, no, the reason why we're not going to have candy for dinner is because that's not what's best for you. That's not what's healthy for you in this moment. There's something deeper that you need to engage with. It's similar. When we come to God, God delights in giving. He delights in providing. When he says no, it's because there's a deeper thing that he wants to lead us into. Maybe he doesn't bring healing in that moment, but it might be because he wants to teach you how he can provide in the midst of suffering, how he is eternally good in that place. Maybe God doesn't give you every single thing that you think he should 
should give you. But maybe it's because he wants you to lean into seeking, to going deeper with his reality. And this is the thing that Jesus leads us towards ultimately in this passage. What is our greatest motivation for prayer is not just that God delights in responding or providing, but it's that God delights in giving himself to us. Look what he says in verse 11. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? Right? What, what dad is going to do that? Right? He's back to a parable of contrast. Right? Hopefully, and there's no dad in the room. If your kid came to you and said, like, hey, can I have some food? You were like, no, you can have a scorpion instead. No, that's, that's, not, what, that's not even what bad dads do. That's Jesus' point. If you then who are evil know how to give good things, how, here's the key, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You see, what God delights most in when it comes to prayer is God delights in giving you himself. And when you learn to pray and become a people of prayer, what you learn to delight in is that prayer is a means by which you get to have intimate connection with the God of the universe. Prayer, at the end of the day, leads to more of God in our life. And it's why prayer is the greatest delight for those who would seek after the true and living God. Because through prayer, we come to know him. We come to commune with him. We come to experience him. We come to connect with God. If your motivation in prayer is anything other than God himself, then your prayer life will suffer. Because the end of prayer is intimacy with God. That is the greatest delight. That's why Jesus says, how much more will the Father give you what you ask for? No, how much more will the Father give you the Holy Spirit? And what is the Holy Spirit but the very presence and power of God in our lives? Prayer is the means by which we access the presence of the living God and bring him to bear on our lives and reality today. Prayer is the means by which we operate not in our own strength and power, but in God's power. Many of us live powerfulest lives. We lack the power of God because we lack prayer and abiding in the source himself. And what Jesus wants to teach his disciples is that when you prioritize prayer, when you follow his example and model, what you will open, the door that will be open to you is an increase of the presence and power of God in your life. And friends, there is nothing greater than that. There is no greater answer to prayer than for God to provide you himself. And so the call that I want to call us to today is to learn how to become a people of prayer. So both in our lives and our community, we might be indwelt with the very presence and power of God, that we would be marked by him. But the reality is, this takes time to learn. It takes pursuit. It takes priority. 
it takes a whole recalibration of our schedules and our purposes and what we desire. It forces us to ask the question at the core of our being, what do I desire most? Because if I desire God most, I will learn to pray. If I desire anything less than him most, then prayer will become secondary in my life. So what do you desire? What motivates your life? What will motivate your life for 2022? Because it won't be something new and flashy that will bring you to the sustainable thing that you desire. It will be an old path. It will be the path of prayer. Because prayer opens us to the presence and power of God. And my prayer for us in 2022 is that we would experience fresh presence and fresh power. So let me pray for us. God, we, we just stop for a moment, even in response to that, to acknowledge your presence here. We give you praise that you've given us your spirit who abides in us who are in Christ who speaks to our heart, who calls us to the deeper places of your reality, who even now is pricking and prompting even my heart, elevating that desire to know you more. And so, Lord, we come, just like those first disciples, and we ask, would you teach us to pray? Would your spirit come? And help us to learn what it looks like to pray in such a way that it opens to us new doors of presence and power in our lives. God, whether we're here this morning praying for the first time or praying for the 100,000th time, we know that there is still more for us to learn of what it looks like to be a people of prayer. And so we ask that you would teach us. Teach us afresh. Teach us anew. May our church become a house of prayer and may we be a people of prayer. Because God, we want you. We want you more than the praise of men. We want you more than accolades and achievements. We want you more than success. We want your presence in our life. We want your power to flow through us that we might minister to others who are so desperately in need of you. So God, even now as we seek to respond to your word, I pray that you would come and you would move through this time. Help us to lean into asking and seeking and knocking and teach us to pray, I ask. In your holy and precious name, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.